You're listening to RevOps FM with Justin Norris. Welcome to RevOps FM. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with one of the humans behind the Humans of MarTech podcast, Phil Gamesh. If you're not familiar with it, Humans of MarTech is one of the top shows in our industry. Phil and his co-host, John, have been at it for a jaw-dropping three years. And Phil, I'm getting tired just thinking about that. And I notice you're also just one show away from your 100th episode milestone. Super exciting there, too. And one of the things that's super special about this show, aside from the huge diversity of guests and topics that they have built up over a three-year span, is the incredible production value. So each show that they do has this really jaw-dropping AI-generated custom artwork. There's a website with very rich and detailed summaries for each show. And you somehow managed to work a busy full-time job as Director of Growth at Pelago while doing it all. So, Phil, thank you for making me feel complete podcast inadequacy, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much, man. Uh, pleasure to be here. Really excited to see what you're you're cooking up. I know you've had a lot of awesome guests already so far and some cool conversations. So, yeah, always happy to share minds on uh, another podcast. Appreciate that. And seriously speaking, having uh, I'll be soon to publish my tenth episode, so one tenth of your journey, and just knowing that the effort that goes into it, the work that goes into doing a high quality show, I'm amazed that you and John, what you've achieved and what you've done over that period of time. So serious, kudos to you. I'd just love to start out maybe about the podcast and a little bit of the origin story and the why and what was your journey like building it? Yeah, so John and I met at Clipfolio. He hired me there. He was heading up growth slash marketing at Clipfolio. We were a Marketo shop. So I came over from Pardot and had to pick up Marketo and learn it. And John and I worked together there for close to three years. He ended up moving to Revenue Pulse after, but we stayed in touch. We became close friends while at Clipfolio. During the pandemic, we were chatting almost weekly on Zoom. And one day we were just like, why don't we hit record? Maybe there's like parts of these conversations that other folks are going to find interesting. I think a lot of people were starting a podcast during the pandemic. But I've always had this itch to share the journey, like share some tips and tricks. I've personally learned a ton from other folks early in my career, reading and listening. So I was just like, if I can help a handful of people that are five years before me in my journey, it would be really cool to do. I had a short stint teaching marketing automation and MarTech at the University of Ottawa locally here and did it for three and a half years. And it was awesome. Like I still mentor a couple of students from those classes. And initially the idea for the podcast was going to be this 101 debunking marketing automation, basically repurposing the course after it shut down. But it quickly morphed into ramblings and just getting some cool folks on the show. So we eventually settled on the journey or the mission of how can we future-proof the folks behind all that MarTech? I think a lot of the content out there is tech-focused. How do we do X? How do we do Y? But not enough is about the humans that are powering all of that tech behind the scenes. So we spent a bit of time on the show talking about, I hate the word soft skills, but like the people side of, of MarTech productivity, how do you stay sane, how do you balance your your home life and your work life. So yeah, that's kind of the genesis of the show. I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of today's episode, Knack. You know, I love marketing automation software, but let's be honest, the email and landing page builders are usually terrible. You can't make it nice without a developer and marketers are going to find a way to break things or go off brand. You do not have time for that. So Knack is totally different. You set the guidelines and then give your users a building experience that's slick, modern, and beautiful. When they're done, everything goes to your map at the push of a button. And don't worry, it supports global teams, approval workflows. It's got your integrations. So head on over to revops.fm forward slash NAC. That's K-N-A-K. And get a special offer just for my listeners. And it's funny that you say, and I know jokingly about soft skills, but I think a recurring theme in the discussions that I've had is those are really the difference between the practitioner and the leader. Like the technical skills get you to a certain degree, but at a certain point, you need those communication skills. You need the ability to prioritize. You need the ability to strategize to get to that next level in your career. Similar experience on your side? Definitely. I think that platform skills will take you a certain way. And if you want to be IC for the rest of your career, even then, there's still a lot of collaboration, road mapping, 
you still need to work with a bunch of other folks. So yeah, there's there's a lot of people skills involved in I think a lot of roles, uh, but I think marketing ops, uh, MarTech specifically, you're at the intersection of a bunch of different teams. Uh, so definitely agree. In terms of building up your audience, I mean, I'm obviously at a much earlier uh, phase of that process than you, but I saw on your website, so, you know, 18,000 listeners. Uh, it's a very well-known show. Does it feel like you get to a certain place of like self-sustaining growth or is it always kind of like any business where you're always trying to do new things to get to that next level of listenership and audience building? Yeah, there were growing pains for sure. I, Me and John joked that like in the early days, even like maybe the first full year of doing the show, like we, it almost felt like we were screaming into the void. <laughs> like there wasn't a lot of listeners. And like, I think the advantage you have is that like, you've gone the route of publicly sharing stuff, like read a lot of your LinkedIn posts and have been a fan before I heard that you were doing a podcast, right? Like John and I didn't necessarily have that benefit. We didn't have an audience already. We didn't have following. Folks didn't know who we were. So we were starting from scratch and year one was almost like just having our friends on the podcast, like friends in MarTech and just getting like interesting stories and stuff and trying to figure out like what what was like our unique perspective on things. And I honestly like wanted to be attached to John Taylor's name. Like he's still a mentor today. And like, I think he, his brain works differently than a lot of folks in MarTech. Like he's almost a web dev now, like he's picked up JavaScript. And so it's been really fun to see how the growth of listenerships, uh, listenership has evolved. And it was really rough at the start. Like I, I, I won't joke. And there were definitely times in like the first year where we were just like, what are we doing? Like, there's a ton of time that gets involved in this. Like, it's really what we want to be doing with our spare time. But it honestly just came down to we were having fun doing it. And we told ourselves that the day that we weren't having fun anymore, we were going to stop doing it. And we never really did it to like become like a top podcast and have like hundreds of thousands of, of listeners. Like, that was never really the goal. Like, the goal is really just like sharing stuff and helping a couple of folks in, in Ottawa and like our niche little area. And when it really kind of picked up steam was, I think there's been like consistent growth, like year over year, never like dramatic growth like we did this summer, actually. So this summer I uh, had a baby. So I was on pat leave for a full month, month and a half or whatever. And in between diaper changes and during naps, it's sometimes like her just like sleeping on me. I would just like geek out on the podcast. And this was right around the time where like ChatGPT and a lot of AI applications were, were picking up steam. And I went super deep on the topic and we did like a four-part series on AI for marketing. And that's when like folks really started picking it up. Like it was it was such a hot topic and everyone was talking about it. But I feel like the cover art helped us like carve a, a unique interest. And yeah, it, it kind of picked up from there. We started getting a lot of inbound requests from guests to be on the show, be interviewed, talk about AI. And uh, yeah, this year we had Scott Brinker on the show, which definitely helped uh, catapult our, our listenership. We went really deep on like niche topics like composable CDP, warehouse native tech, uh, email deliverability. And so, yeah, it's been a fun ride. And it's a journey for sure. There's growing pains at the start. I've noticed that you guys go deep and I think you really need to have a unique way of doing things, you know, for people to start to feel that trust and that relationship with your show and what you do. It doesn't have to be deep. It could be short. It could be topical. But I think going deep is a really useful thing because then people, I was reviewing, I'd published a post on uh, the whole Google, Yahoo changes, spam complaint thing. And in my research came across your episode. You know, it was very much the way I also personally think like you just broke everything down very exhaustively. You took it apart, you put it back together again. And I think that's really helpful for people because not everybody has the time or the inclination to do that sort of work. And when you feel that someone else has done it, then you're like, well, I can trust these people. They're a trusted resource. I think it's a great angle and you're doing it effectively. And I also, you know, what you said about having fun. I've had a few people ask me since I started doing this, hey, do you think I should have start a podcast or what's involved? I was like, do not do that. But I think unless you are the type of person that just actually enjoys the process inherently, like if you think you're going to start it for fame and fortune and riches, like it's not that. But if you enjoy having conversations and learning, like I do think sometimes 
even if nobody else saw them and they never saw the light of day, it would be a very valuable thing for me to be doing just for my own personal growth. You have to be someone that feels that. Totally agree. Selfishly, a lot of our topics are things that I'm pondering myself at, at my day job. Like the whole composable CDP deep dive that we did, like we were evaluating whether to go package CDP or composable at my current startup. We were debating whether we rethink our email deliverability strategy. So a lot of like the themes that you see on the podcast are are self-serving. Like I, I learn from industry experts and I apply those those learnings to to my day job. So that's like part of the the joy there. But I think the also the other part that a lot of folks don't realize until they get into it is like this is a ton of stuff that happens behind the scenes on on the production side of things. And I've picked up most of the slack there from John, but I, I actually think I enjoy most of it because early in my career before I wanted to to go into Martech, like I was I was big on graphic design and just like media production. My dad's a, a photographer and video editor. So like I was working on Max and, and GarageBand and iMovie when I was a kid, like one day I wanted to be like a, a cinematographer, you know? So the idea of working in editing audio and, and figuring out how to like create visual imagery for, for the show, even before we went into AI and, and mid-journey, we we're drawing images and illustrations for each guest. So I enjoyed that part of it. That part of it like gave me energy as opposed to a lot of folks are just like, I want to chat with people. I don't want to like worry about all that stuff. And, and there's cool media production agencies that, that'll do that side of it for you. I enjoy doing both. And that's part of the joy for sure. There's a real sense of craft. And I think you have to almost see yourself as a maker. I mean, you are a maker when you do a show, but it's different than just like, we're a business and we're going to do a podcast and what's the ROI and it's what you do. So I want to go to the imagery and the use of AI. You've really practiced what you preach in the sense of incorporating technology into the fabric of the show, which makes a lot of sense. I'm vaguely aware of all of these tools and capabilities, but certainly not expert in them. So I'd love for you to just educate me and listeners on what your process is and, and how, you, how you create all of this. Yeah, we already recorded a, a pretty deep episode on on the whole process and we were going to put this live, but we ended up delaying that one until next season. It's going to be episode 101 in favor of like all the Google changes. Too many people were talking about this. We're like, oh, wait, let, let's jump on this. Let's let's chat about this. But the short version of it is we started using GPT to basically up-level our transcripts. Like I think a lot of folks for podcasts will just like copy-paste the transcript on on a landing page and call it done. Um, and like I think transcription tools have evolved a lot and gotten a lot better. They're still filled with likes and ums and half the time like they're hallucinating and it, and it doesn't really make sense. I don't think ChatGPT is really good at writing and coming up with like uh, authentic content and, and brand new content, but ChatGPT is really good at taking a raw audio transcript and turning it into something legible or interesting. So I've got a couple of prompts that have evolved over time, but I'm essentially taking the transcript from otter.ai. We use that tool for, for transcripts. And I'm basically taking the question and the answer from the guest. And I asked ChatGPT to turn it into a blog post passage. And it's actually really interesting what it comes up with. Sometimes it it gets a bit confused when we're talking about CDP or GPT. It doesn't always get the acronyms correctly on the transcription. So there's a couple of things in there that I tweak the prompt for. I always like reread the prompt. Sometimes it's not perfect. Sometimes the logic is is kind of missed. But oftentimes the output is way greater than the, the raw transcript that someone would end up reading. And so we ended up having this like long form, like 3,000, 4,000 word blog post for each of our episodes. And we we're like, how do we augment this? And uh, around the time I was on Pat Leave, I just started playing around with MidJourney, got a paid account and was just like playing around with it. And I was like, man, it would be cool to, to make our cover art uh, for MidJourney. But then I was thinking like, what if every question that we have, which is essentially an H2 on our landing page, what if we have like an accompanying image uh, to, to support that? And then we can use that for social shares. Instead of just sharing the one full episode, we can share specific pieces of questions and takeaways from the show. So it, it's it's evolved into like using GPT and, and mid-journey now. And we always leverage GPT to come up with an H2 for that blog post passage and summarize a practical key takeaway for the audience at the end as well. 
But yeah, it's definitely evolved a lot over time. And it's funny, we joke that like, we hear a lot of folks on social that discover us and a lot of the comments that we get when we share our episodes are not like, wow, the content's amazing. And I learned so much. Most of the comments are just like, this cover art is badass. Like, wow, this image is awesome. (laughs) Well, we'll take it. The imagery is awesome. I haven't gone deep into mid-journey, but I've played around with a few AI image generating tools. And some of them have been pretty underwhelming. Some of them are pretty cool. Just the other day, actually, I was able to successfully use one and get an image. I'm like, okay, actually, I'll use this as a feature image on a blog post because it's pretty good. You have obviously learned the prompt engineering expertise to be able to get exactly what you want. How do you get somebody and like very specific things that are unique to their personality and incorporating it in this futuristic landscape and all that sort of stuff? The secret to making the illustrations actually look like our guests comes from a secondary bot that we connect to Discord, which we use for mid-journey. So it's called insightfacewap.ai, and uh, I can share you uh, links to that so to put in the show notes. But essentially, it's saving features of the face of our guests. So I have it in a private server on Discord, and I'll upload a bunch of images of the guests that I'm having on the show. And then I use that bot to save one of those images, like front-facing, nice, clear, no glasses, good quality. And then the bot remembers features of that face. And then I'm using a bunch of different prompts to come up with an illustration. Usually, like it's the, the, the prompt style is flat illustration. This is something I tell a lot of folks that are getting started in mid-journey is that like you, you can learn a ton about how to do prompts from their guides. There's a bunch of YouTubers and creators that have been using mid-journey for uh, several years now that are like light years ahead of me. And I've learned a ton from them as well. But like pick a style. There's so many different styles that you can use in mid-journey. And that's like the difference between mid-journey and, and some of the other image generators is that like once you pick a style you can actually get pretty consistent type of colors, type of flat illustration, or if you want to go like geometric, or if you want to like do cubism, or you can do like real life photography also. So like pick a style, like discover, you can see a bunch of other people publicly using mid-journey and get a taste of like what the prompt was and, and what the output was. But the secret sauce to making the guest cover art actually look like our guest is that We'll basically do a bunch of prompts to get some flat illustrations that look kind of okay. Never really look like our guests. Sometimes they're like, we get lucky and it it looks pretty similar to our guests and they'll be cool with us just running with that one. But most of the time we're just like right clicking on the output and then we select the inside face swap bot and it applies the guest's real face on top of the illustration. We're applying like a real photo on top of an illustration. So the output isn't always like perfect. Sometimes it just breaks the flat illustration style. So there's like a bunch of like test and learn, uh, which is part of the fun and the addictive nature of using uh, these image generators. But yeah, ultimately, we always end up on on one that looks kind of okay and, and, and we run with it. What is your perspective on what this process is. Is it a new type of graphic design, whereas instead of using point and click inside of Photoshop, you're just interacting with a different set of tools? Is it replacing the work of the creator to a degree? What is your point of view on that? I think for now, it's not replacing the designer, especially not the illustrator. It can do concept art way faster than those illustrators and and those designers. But it still can't like create something that's specific to a brand. Like a lot of these designers and illustrators have a set brand guidelines that they're following. And you can instruct Midjourney to use specific colors and, and, and themes. But at the end of the day, it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be as on brand as an actual designer and illustrator that's creating like retargeting ad banners. Like that's always like, at least for now, going to be better. In the future, maybe there's a way to like upload your brand guidelines or like a specific uh, format within the tool itself to change those settings. That could be game changing if if they're working on that. But I think for now, uh, there's still a lot of upside to using uh, an illustrator and and a designer if you've got a big company and and you've got like a media production uh, within it. But yeah, the other thing I'll say is that Midjourney is still not perfect. They've gotten better at hands and uh, you still can't do words and letters. Uh, 
ChatGPT and, and Dolly have started playing around with that, but it's still not perfect yet. Like if you say like upload something that says humans of Martech on it, it's going to be misspelled like nine out of 10 times. So like the words are still not really great with image generators. That's where like word art artists and, and graphic designers are still like a, a level up on top of, of these tools. And even if you have like something super specific to do, like I'll give you an example. I was trying to come up with an image you know, those traditional like iceberg images where you see like the tip of the iceberg, but under the water is like the the meat of the iceberg. And so I was trying to convey that with a, a concept. I forget what it was, but like Midjourney wasn't able to do it. Like I couldn't come up with a prompt that outputted that similar type of iceberg image. Sometimes you can even like upload uh, an image of something that you want, and then you can just like tweak the prompt on it, reference that image. But it, like I couldn't do it, couldn't do it with Midjourney. Like the time it took me to like figure out how to do it, the designer would have have been done already with that. So it, it's still not replacing folks. But uh, I think at some point you got to think that it will. Interesting, those strange limitations. I saw another one the other day where it was like it had misspelled LinkedIn. It's like you've got you know a quadrillion billion petabytes of data and you can't spell LinkedIn. Like it's so strange that it has such a capability and yet limited in those specific ways. Maybe we turn to MarTech generally. You mentioned a number of the different technologies you know, that you've used. Apart.shop, uh, then you moved over to Marketo, and you've gone through a number of other platforms. What's been your point of view on that journey? A lot of people tie their career to one platform and kind of plant their flag there and make that their brand, and you've taken a different path. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I'm definitely biased on that point just because it is the path that I stumbled into. So I started off with Pardot and a Salesforce shop. So I was really deep in Pardot for like four years and became a craft. And I definitely wanted to stick to it. I saw the value of it and I went to like all the conferences and I saw all these like experts that were specific Pardot specialists, right? And I was like, I, I could do that. Like I could become a Pardot specialist. And I don't think there's anything wrong with going that route. I ended up going the route of trying a different tool just because I wanted to join a different company. Clipfolio in Ottawa was like one of the hottest startups and uh, still kicking around and, and doing good stuff today. And they just happened to be using a different tech stack. So it, it wasn't a matter of, I want to find another cool company that's using Pardot. It was, it was time for me to like leave the company that I was at and try something new, like look for something greater, bigger problems to solve. And they happened to be using Marketo. And then when I moved over from Clipfolio to Close, they were using Customer.io and so on and so forth. Like now I'm using Iterable and I've used a bunch of these different tools. And I like to give this idea that there is a lot of importance being platform agnostic in MarTech because I am a big fan of strategy over platform. Maybe like later on in your career too. Like I think initially when you're an IC, you're a specialist and you're at a company, like I think there's nothing wrong with being an expert in in the platform itself. But as you like grow up in different levels in MarTech or in marketing ops, you get involved in a lot more strategy and budget planning. And at the end of the day, like all these automation tools, they're relational databases. They all have list building and segmentation capabilities. They're all rule-based automation workflow builders, right? If this, then that. Yeah. If this, then that and or statements, they're all so similar, right? So I give that advice because I would rather chase cool companies in my career than limit myself to the companies I could work at because they use a specific platform or a specific tool. Like I don't want to limit myself to a certain stack. At the end of the day, there's like 11,000 MarTech tools out there, right? It's impossible to be a pro in all of them. And the last point I think on that is like legacy platforms are slow to change. Pardot hadn't changed in like X years after I stopped using it. Like Marketo is still using the same UI. It's always used. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> it's too painful. <laughs> it's not a dichotomy, right? It's not like one or the other. I think folks can make a beautiful career being a Marketo or an iterable or a HubSpot consultant. I think that folks that go the strategist way, the platform agnostic ways is also valuable as well. I agree with you. I had a almost diametrically opposed career in that I went deep into one platform. I spent seven years at a, uh, at a consulting shop that was deeply embedded in the Marketo and then the Adobe ecosystem. But 
I think what you see is that, yes, the technology is, is big and it's complicated and they will need specialists. But unless you really plan to just hitch your wagon to that one horse and hope that it's going to keep going for 20 years, at a certain point, you'll probably have to pivot. You can see it already. I love Marketo. I think it's still the marketing automation platform of choice. I'd, I'd probably buy it again if I was building a, a stack from scratch today, but it doesn't have the place that it once had in the ecosystem. Like you said, it's it's been acquired. It's legacy. It's slow to change. They still can't get the UI together. Products, they ossify and fossilize once they get ingested by the maw of one of these big companies. And then they just kind of stagnate. And younger dynamic companies come in and overtake them. And so is that something you really want to worry about? Um, and then I also think ultimately, if you aspire to some sort of in-house leadership, it's you're not going to go to a C-level meeting and they'll be like, we need your technical skills. You know, they want someone who knows those technical skills and who can be a strategic operations leader and think about business-focused problems. So I think the path that you took makes sense. And I think it more and more makes sense as the tech skills become not unimportant, but more commoditized, more easy to to replicate or to offshore or, you know, to do different things with. I'm curious, given all that though, let's say you were starting a new company today, what would your stack be? Where have you landed as like the best of breed for the modern era? Yeah, it's interesting that you say Marketo would still be your choice. If I was starting from scratch and it would be a startup at first, like I think, you know, maybe one day when we become a big team, like we look at like the the bigger tools in the space, but I think there's too many less expensive tools and tools with a smaller learning curve to get started. So like I think automation for me, like my two favorite platforms are Iterable and Customer.io. Slightly biased because they are the last two tools that I've used and, and kind of like dove in and, and really expanded on on uh, the capabilities and the beautiful UI and, and building like visual builders and visual journeys and stuff like that. I think that they lean a bit more on the uh, B2C side of things, uh, specifically Iterable. My current company is B2B2C. It's a super weird business model, but we're on the B2C side of things. We we market to consumers and eligible employees for for the Pelago Health Benefit. And so Iterable is is well-versed for, for that use case itself. The size of database that we have in Iterable, like it would cost us an arm and a leg to house that in, in a Marketo or any of these other bigger ones, but I'm a big fan of the modern data stack. Like I know we, I said we went super deep on the composable CDP architecture and I'm a big fan of it now. I've completely converted uh, at previous companies. I was a big fan of segment in, in the packaged CDP. Uh, I've even used uh, MParticle as well for a few consulting gigs, but I've, I've opened up to the composable CDP now and and we can get into some of the benefits there but like I I just think that like the data warehouse is the source of truth today and for marketers it used to be the CRM and then it used to be the automation tool and then it used to be the package CDP and in all of those instances we're essentially making a copy of our user database and we're bothering our data team or our engineering team to because, you know, like none of those CDPs off the shelf are like you don't need a developer, even though they all claim that you don't need a developer. At the end of the day, like I think the data warehouse. You always need a developer. <laughs> you always need it. Yeah. Especially for data warehousing. And I think that like most of these companies, startups, especially in tech, like the data warehouse is a central piece of the stack today. And they're making all of this work building all the pipelines to like ingest the data from all your different tools. They're structuring it in the warehouse. And then we're using reverse CTL tools to push that into other tools. A CDP, a package CDP is essentially copying all the work your data team did in the warehouse. And you're paying for a whole other copy of that data, just like you are in Marketo already or in Iterable. Like the, it's not warehouse native yet. I think at some point, a lot of these tools will become but so, yeah, I think that like, you know, whether it's Snowflake or BigQuery or Redshift, it's become an essential part of the stack for MarTech. Not that MarTech folks are really engineering the data warehouse, but they are architecting a lot of the tools that they pick based around the idea that the warehouse is the central point of truth. And then we would use like Snowplow or Amplitude or RudderStack to do that event collection replace GA4, like don't have to worry about all of those limitations there. 
And then you use a reverse detail tool like Census to push the data that you have in your warehouse to all the tools that you use in marketing. So your ad platforms, your iterables, your CRM, so that you don't have to worry about like, is, is my CDP, is the data in my CDP, is it matching with what I have in the warehouse? Does it match what I have in the CRM? All of these tools have the warehouse as the central point of, of failure. We're positive there, but yeah. So those are the core of what I think would be part of it from scratch. There's a bunch of other ones too. Like I'm still a big fan of Zapier. I love the world of async and having like internal wikis for like documentation, big fan of Notion and using Loom and all of these like whiteboarding tools. Like uh, we use Figma and, and FigJam at, at work for just workflow processes, asynchronous design thinking sessions, experimentation, CMS, CRM. I don't have too many hot takes on those. There's a lot of options in that space. Obviously, I spent a bit of time at WordPress. So I have a, a bit of a bias for that as, as the CMS, but... Yeah, there's still a ton of options, right? We certainly have no shortage of options. Nobody's ever complained that we don't have enough MarTech yet. As the Scott Brinker landscape map becomes like approaching infinity in its size, let's. I want to turn to this concept of composability, and maybe you've obviously thought deeply about it. For those for whom it might be a newer concept, can we just build it from the ground up? Clearly, it sounds like what we're talking about is taking different components and putting them together to create something that maybe you would have to buy off the shelf as a single unit of functionality otherwise. Yeah, I think the easiest way to think about it is point solutions versus an all-in-one platform. Composable for me is like this idea of best-of-breed components that some of them are purchased, some of them are created in-house, whether your data engineers are building your reverse ETL pipeline in-house or the ETL pipeline. Like The best-of-breed idea, whether it's purchased or created in-house, it just means all of these components are integrated together and maybe they're different pieces, but you're not locked into one vendor on like a two-year, three-year contract and you're being billed by a number of people in the database. There's this idea that flexibility is currency in today's MarTech landscape. I think Arun, the founder of Castle.io, said this on our podcast. It, it, like it stuck with me. Flexibility is currency. And so opting for a composable stack or like a composable CDP or even like unbundling pieces of, of your MarTech over this idea of like an all-in-one tool, it can provide you this like elbow room to innovate and adapt faster than if you were locked into one vendor. One of the examples there would be the advancements of AI right now. Like if you're locked into one platform that doesn't have AI features yet, what are you doing? Like you want to play with those AI features? Like are you waiting two or three years for that like big legacy platform to finally come out with AI features? Or are you trying some of these new startups, these new point solutions that have this capability already that can actually hook up to your data warehouse? That's the idea of the composable stack. It's way more flexible. There's uh, options for a bit more innovation. In some cases, it is cheaper. In some cases, you have to factor in like the troubleshooting when you have like seven tools instead of one and something breaks, like the troubleshooting piece, like it comes into becoming a bit trickier. Like you have to figure out which one is breaking there. Sometimes it isn't cheaper, but sometimes folks will pay for it just for the added flexibility. But this idea of not being locked into one platform and you can't try any other features until that one platform comes up with it. And maybe they were purchased by a large enterprise and they're still integrating it with the bigger company. And AI features, by the time they come out, there's going to be like way more advancements already and like point solutions. So that's that's the idea behind it, like best of breed components that all work together. But it does feel like best of breed being taken down to a, another higher level of resolution because time was where best of breed meant I'm going to use Marketo and Salesforce instead of Pardot and Salesforce, you know, like kind of like VHS Betamax wars of best of breed versus like buying the super stack from one company was, you know, I'm not, not going to just buy everything from Salesforce or everything from SAP or everything from Adobe or whatever. I'm going to pick and choose. And now it's, you're even taking some of those things and breaking them down even further. It feels like where you, know, you have a warehouse instead of just having Marketo, maybe you have one tool for your workflow building. Another tool is uh, ingesting activity data, like digital clickstream data, like you referred to Snowplow. And I find that inherently appealing because like for all the reasons that you've mentioned, the one area where I think 
but a single vendor sometimes makes sense is HubSpot. If you're smaller, helping a friend with a business project and he was on HubSpot. And I was just amazed. They've got kind of everything at 80%. And if you're a small company just getting started, that maybe that's kind of like good enough for you. I don't need Chili Piper. I have calendar building and I don't need sales loft because I have my sequencing and I don't need Marketo. It's just all right there. But I think once you're past a certain size, you want, like you said, I don't want to wait for features. I want to have the best of everything and I want them to play well together. The flip side to that then, though, if I think about it, is what you alluded to with the troubleshooting point. And I've even found we have a great data team, but it's hard working with a data warehouse. There's discrepancies. There's why is this opportunity in sales? As soon as you have more than one of a thing, then all of a sudden you're, like you said, bringing worlds together. And is your experience that this is achievable in a smaller org or does it require big teams? Or is there inherent overhead and like friction and cognitive load that comes with breaking things up in this way? Definitely. I think like on a troubleshooting perspective, on like a QA perspective, making sure that data is is matching up in all these tools because you're still loading that data differently. You're converting that data in different format based on like the two of the endpoint solutions that you're sending it to. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe it's not one of the first things you do as a, as a startup. And I think even like a couple of years ago, this idea of like having a data team at inception of a startup was, was crazy. But I think today like, it's, it's almost a necessity. And, um, I've worked for startups where there wasn't a data team, right? Like there was maybe an analyst or two, but like when it came to getting data in your automation tool, it was up to the marketer to figure that out. Or if there was too technical stuff, you had to bother one of the engineers who was working on product stuff to like stop working on customer facing product things, help the marketing team on JavaScript and like cookies and, and stuff like that on, on the front end side. Today, I think a lot of startups from day one will have at least a person owning data and they're working on source of truth and maybe some customer facing stuff but at the end of the day their their role is like stitching together different teams and making sure that teams are getting the data they need they're coming up with analysis like eventually they want to you know go to funding and 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 get extra stuff so like all the fundraisers right now are asking like what are you doing with ai and part of the key there is having a ton of data you can't do anything useful with AI if you don't have a, like a raw database already started that's, you know, structured or someone thought about that from day one, from inception. So that's like the need or the the exception or the expectation of having a data team from day one. And so does it make sense to have like a, a warehouse, you know, in the first couple of days and, and you're using HubSpot? Like maybe not, but I think at some point, especially if you have a data person on the team, like it's a matter of figuring out how does the marketer work with the data person? What are the limitations? What's going to be the hiring roadmap? Are we going to invest more in that data team? And we're going to have capabilities to figure all those QA issues out and um, the cost differences versus like building a package CDP, like an particle or a segment, like those discussions all need to happen with like the data team and MarTech team because at the end of the day, like when you're just getting started, I don't think there's anything wrong with like doing the HubSpot route, like on top of all the things you said they do, like they also do a CMS, you can have your blog in HubSpot, they do all the forms for you. But at some point, you'll need to make that decision. Like, are, are we still going to stick to HubSpot? Do we want like more best of breed tools? And then the whole migration discussion needs to happen. And maybe you kick that down the road because you don't want to take on that migration project. And if you've got everything invested in HubSpot, like you've got like three years of SEO data in the HubSpot CMS tool, like how excited are you about moving that over to Ghost or or uh, or WordPress? Like that's a big migration project in and of itself. And I'm speaking from experience there. <laughs> Yeah, those growing pains are extremely expensive. And it's easy to forget, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, it was kind of revolutionary to have a cloud-first warehouse and that wasn't you know, necessarily managed by IT. I remember being consulting, thinking about like, I want to come up with like a totally cloud-based BI solution, cloud-based warehouse, cloud-based ETL, cloud-based BI. I mean, today that would be an entirely mundane concept. It's like, yeah, like, of course, but at that time, it was a big lift. It was different. And I think 
I mean, that's why Snowflake is a quadrillion dollar company that it is because everyone is using it now, but it's easy to forget, I guess, that that was not commonplace, you know, not so long ago for some of us, at least. Even for a lot of MarTech vendors, like it's not a reality for them yet. Like a lot of the automation vendors are not cloud-based. Like they don't get data from your warehouse. Some of them are setting up syncs and like direct pipelines into it. But at the end of the day, they're still copying that data. Iterable and Marketo and Customer.io, they all charge you based on the number of users that you're storing in the Marketo database, right? But you're also paying Snowflake for storing those users in that database. So I think in the future, I don't know how far down the line this is, and there's some startups that are kicking around with this idea already, some bigger platforms on B2C already doing this, but this idea of like warehouse native MarTech, like connecting directly to the database, like sitting on top of the database, querying it when you're creating a segment versus copying it. I go super deep on this on the podcast. Like there's a lot of ideas and opinions about this, like copying data. Sometimes there's still upsides to doing that. Like you get that data closer to you. So when you want to act on it, it's faster, but then there's like latency issues and it's not necessarily real time anymore. So there's, there's a lot of debates around it, but I think eventually the space is moving to this idea of warehouse native. We'll get a selection from your back catalog of relevant episodes <laughs> for people that want to go deeper into this. Before we turn away from the MarTech talk, this is sort of perhaps an existential question in some ways, but as technologists, as operators, we all have our preferences. Zooming out a level and taking like a business lens on it, how much does it matter? We all need this tech to get jobs done. Is it a 5% competitive advantage? Is it a 10%? I know that's impossible to quantify, but what is the ultimate value to the business of all of this technology? Yeah, I think if you're putting on a short-term lens and you're trying to hit short-term goals, it doesn't really matter whether it's like X or Y. They're probably still going to figure out a way to do it and, and get to like your endpoint for your short-term goals. I think it's important for companies and that are thinking more long term. Like when when you're building your Martech roadmap, and I know you had Daryl on the show, and uh, we just finished recording with him. Like he's really big on this idea of thinking of your Martech stack as a product, and there's a lot of things that come into that. But like one of the cool ideas is like productizing your Martech roadmap and looking into the future, like not just next year, but like two, three, four years down the line, what does that tech stack look like? And what do we need to be able to do by the time we hit like our goals in four or five years? The tools that we have today, maybe they're hitting our short-term metrics, but we're going to have a data team that's going to be 20 people. Are we making the most use out of those folks if we're using a tool that's copying our customer data and it's not leveraging our warehouse? So like, with the long-term lens, I think this becomes super important. And there's obviously a lot of unknowns, like there, there's things you can't predict. And like, what does the MarTech world look like in five, 10 years? Like who the hell knows with AI? But I think those discussions are important to have when, when you like think of your MarTech roadmap as, as a product and you're trying to productize it. On the AI subject, obviously that's been the buzzword of the year. And so I'm not questioning, well, as AI, it's a fad, it'll disappear. I, I really don't believe that. And I don't think that it's very defensible to believe that right now. But I do wonder sometimes what is the reality? What is the hype? What is overblown? Is it coming for our jobs? Uh, and you clearly a very thoughtful person and have worked more closely with it than I think anyone that I've had the chance to speak to in depth. So I'm curious, what's your take next year this time? What will the role of AI be in our daily work from your point of view? These discussions have been happening all year with a lot of MarTech vendors on the product side and trying to figure out, do we just add a little copy generator on our tool, a copy assistant and, and call it done like we have an AI feature? Or do we really think mindfully about the future of the space? How do we move away from rule-based automation tools that are and or ifs and whys to letting AI take the wheel when it comes to deciding what message should a certain segment get. And I think some tools in the space that are less legacy have already started moving uh, towards some of those features. 
But I think that there's some really interesting capabilities in the enterprise space. And I've spent most of my time in MarTech and, and my career in startups. Uh, but I did have a stint at Automatic and WordPress.com. And they're like a 8,000 person company. So not like a massive enterprise, but some really, really smart uh, data scientists that I had the pleasure of working with. And I think that they're like light years ahead in terms of building stuff in-house that eventually is going to be part of MarTech vendors. It's just going to be table stakes. One of those things is propensity models or this idea of like uplift modeling. Right now, when we're doing like a discount campaign, we just finished Black Friday, right? Like folks are sending out an email to their entire database with a 15% discount notification, right? When you send that discount to all of your customers and a customer who was going to buy at full price anyways, gets your offer and buys that discount, you're technically losing revenue from that person. So there's a lot of literature around this like uplift modeling idea. Uh, I think like uh, the early Facebook uh, data engineers were some of the proponents around this. Usually like puts folks into four buckets. So there's like the sure things. Those are the people that are going to buy regardless of whether they get your Black Friday offer or not. There's the lost causes. They have moved on from you. They maybe started a free trial, but they're not interested in buying your product. There's the sleeping dogs. Those are the folks that might react negatively to actually getting your offer. Maybe they were going to renew, but they got your email and it pissed them off. And now they're not going to renew because they remembered how much they were spending with you. But the persuadables is kind of the holy grail of of marketing and, and this idea uplift modeling. This is the most important group because these are the folks that are on the fence about buying something and are going to be the most receptive to getting your Black Friday offer. So how do you let AI take over when it comes to figuring out your target users? What bucket do they fall into? And how do you only send that discount to the persuadables and, and focus on them? So at, yeah, at, at Automatic, I worked with a data science team that had built out an internal modeling engine called Pipe. And it was so powerful for marketers and, and the growth team because we could essentially build a model for any of the events that we were tracking from our users from a predictive standpoint. So we could build a list and target specific users for an email campaign based on a question that we had like, which free users are going to buy a site by day number 30 or which paying users are going to churn by day 90. Like we could target specific messaging to those users before they actually do that thing. Abandoned card emails happen after the fact and sometimes people have already moved on. But when you are able to predict someone who's going to have something in their cart or isn't going to buy something at the end of a certain day, you can get ahead of that and try to prevent it from happening. So it, it, there's a whole like bunch of use cases around that. And I think that like, you know, a lot of folks are still living in this like rule based nature. And the future is really letting these models be part of the MarTech vendor stack so that humans and MarTech folks are less prescriptive about the campaigns and the touch points that are going out. And you're letting models predict whether someone is going to do something. And so you're sending them the best message at the right time to do that. It's funny what you described reminds me a lot of something I studied when I was first getting into marketing, talking about 10 or 15 years ago now. I read a book called Drilling Down by a fellow named Jim Novo. He did a lot of database marketing, like shopping network or shopping catalog type of thing where you're, you know, people that are buying stuff like that. But they were looking at like recency, frequency, monetary value, RFM, maybe you or listeners are familiar with, but it was a very similar idea. You divide people into quintiles, I think it was, and then you adjust your strategy accordingly. You have a discount ladder so that you're not offering big discounts to people that we're going to buy anyways, and you're offering greater discounts to people that are maybe much less likely to come, so you entice them back with a stronger. So it makes me feel like many things that maybe it's applying a much more sophisticated set of rules or taking you know a much bigger set of data points aside from just those three to do to take playbooks that have existed and apply them you know perhaps in a more intelligent way or more automated way yeah letting the machine take the wheel and you're still kind of uh running point on stuff and monitoring things and doing qa but 
I think like gone are going to be the days in, in five-ish years where the marketer is creating rule-based uh, automation based on loose data as opposed to just like models with like a bunch of historical data and events that are way better than us at predicting potential behaviors. But will it be able to spell LinkedIn by that time? <laughs> Maybe not. And like the hands are still going to be weird. Touching on the personal side, I know you mentioned you're a new dad, you have a full-time job, you have this side gig, this project, really almost a second job. How do you balance all that? Yeah, this is a, a key theme for us in, in every episode that we chat with folks. So I think for me, we pride ourselves on this idea that like balance is like this fixed point in the journey that like it's something that we we need to reach. Uh, but I think it's just this uh, this continuous journey rather than a, a final destination. And it involves a ton of stuff and every human is different and different things energize people and different things like reduce the battery on, on a lot of folks. So for some folks like passion and alignment and making sure that you're doing meaningful work, that's like a big part of my job. I work at Pelago that helps conquer addiction. And, you know, a lot of companies like to say that they're saving the world and they're saving lives. We're not doctors, we're not saving babies, but we are saving people from their addictions and we have saved lives. And I think that's a a super powerful uh, thing to be able to say. Like I I help run the MarTech stack and, and run the growth team that essentially like when we convince someone to sign up, like they quit their tobacco addiction, they quit their opioid addiction, or they reduce their drinking. And it has like meaningful impact on, on other people's lives. The other thing for me that drives me is this idea of like personal recharging, being able to take time away from work. Like I, I love MarTech, obviously, like I'm able to have a podcast about it that I'm doing on my free time, but I'm still a big fan of escapism, healthy escapism, going for walks with, with my dog, my wife, my newborn, taking part into TV shows, a big fan of like science fiction and reading books and just like escaping the world that is my day-to-day grind. But for me, age-old advice that actually comes out in a lot of the answers on the show when we ask this question is to never underestimate the power of a well-timed no when you get a new request or you get a new opportunity. That's the key to maintaining that balance. Like we had Lauren on the show and she put it really nicely. I don't know if she came up with this or not. She was like, life is about like juggling and you have a bunch of balls in your hands that you're juggling. Some of them are made of glass and those are the important ones that you can't drop. So it's about figuring out what are the most important things that you have going on, making sure you're prioritizing those and not feeling stressed about saying no when other stuff comes up that won't have the bandwidth for. It's good advice. It's good to know you're a a sci-fi fan. We didn't go into Star Trek and MarTech, but I think there's a whole (laughs) other show there we could do. But I really appreciate you spending the time with me today, Phil. You're a super interesting guy and inspiring what you've achieved with the podcast. And I also just think how it's informed your perspective or the interplay between the learning and discussions you've had through the podcast and your thoughtfulness as a MarTech leader, as a growth leader and what you're doing. We'll include lots of links in the show notes, again, to some choice cuts from the back catalog for folks that want to go deeper into Humans of MarTech, but really appreciate you chatting with me, and I hope we get a chance to speak again. Yeah, this is super fun. Thanks for having me, and really uh, excited to see the trajectory of this show, and happy to support you, and uh, excited to keep listening. I've uh, listened to all, all episodes so far, so keep it up, man. Hey everyone, I want to invite you over to the RevOps FM Substack community, where you can sign up to get rough transcripts, show notes, longer form articles, and other bonus content. Just head over to revops.fm slash subscribe to get free access. I'd also love to know what you thought of the episode and to hear suggestions for topics you want to learn about. Feel free to leave a comment on Substack or send me an email at justin at revops.fm. Thanks for listening.